Good evening. Time to get started tonight. We still have no projector, so grab a songbook. Uh, and before I forget, uh, after church, we need some guys to carry some risers from the conference room up here to the stage for the preschool graduation on Friday. So please help out with that so I don't have to do it. We begin tonight with number 934. 934 Hosanna 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 in the Number 937, flip over a page, two pages, 937. After this song, uh, Dwight will have our reading of prayer. <clears throat> Would you stand, please? Nothing ever seen or heard. Who 
seated, please. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this Lord's Day that we could come together and worship you in truth and in spirit. We're thankful, Lord, for the many blessings that you have bestowed upon us as a church and as a people. We thank you, Lord, today on this Mother's Day that we remember the women in our lives and, and those here with us. Lord, we are, we are blessed to have so many wonderful Christian examples in our lives. And we're thankful for this Mother's Day that we could celebrate them and their lives. Dear God, be with us, we pray, in everything that we say and do. We, we pray for those that are graduating from high school and, and our college students. Lord, we ask you to remember each, and one, each one of them. We pray that you will guide them in the steps to take for, the, for their lives and the paths they choose. We pray that they always take you with them wherever they go. Once again, Lord, we, we ask you to be with us in this service. We, we're thankful that we could remember our Lord and Savior, Savior Jesus Christ this day, your son that died for our sins. We give thanks, Lord, for the many blessings, all that you've bestowed upon us. Again, we, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chris's scripture for tonight is in Luke 5, verses 4 through 8. Luke 5, 4 through 8. 4 through 8. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came, came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Song of invitation this evening is number 149. Please mark that in your book, 149. Before the lesson tonight, we'll sing number 531. Once again, would you stand please, 531.
Proceed, please. Good evening. Well, we're starting a new go. And so kind of wanted to introduce the, the series to um, like this. There are a lot of great chapters in Scripture that talk about evangelism. Uh, there are a lot that are not in the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at five or six that are not in the book of Acts. Uh, great evangelism chapters that teach us, motivate us how uh, to do evangelism, but also motivate us to, to do it. How many times have we been standing next to someone, maybe at the supermarket or uh, maybe just in a conversation with friends or on a phone call, and we think, oh, this is the perfect opportunity to talk to them, to say something, to insert a spiritual conversation, and the moment passes, and then it's gone, and we didn't take it. And we think, oh, I should have done that, but I was, I was afraid, or I didn't know how to, how to start, or we fill in the blank with a lot of different excuses and reasons, don't we? But I think maybe this series will help motivate us to jump on those opportunities. So we're going to try to take some principles uh, from these chapters that we're looking at over the next uh, five or six weeks. This, this will actually be, this series, the Sunday night series, will carry us throughout the summer, I think, because I'll be gone so many times on uh, Sunday nights so next throughout the summer uh, with mission trips and BBS and, and these kinds of things. Um, so this will actually carry us all the way through the summer. But uh, tonight we're starting in Isaiah chapter 6. I think it's one of the great evangelism chapters. Um, Isaiah gets transported to God's throne room, and he sees the most majestic and powerful, mind-numbing image of God on his throne. Um, after that, God has this job, and Isaiah didn't know it, I suppose, when he was transported to, to God's throne room, but this has been a job obligation. This, this little section, um, how Isaiah reacted, uh, was his resume for whether he was going to get to do this job or not, I suppose. But he jumps on the opportunity to, to go. And you, you know his, his famous line, and God says, who shall go for us? And Isaiah raises his hand, here I am, send me, right? I, I want to go. I want to tell your people your laws. I want them to love you. So, so send me. Pick me. He's, he's pleading with God. I, I want in. I, I believe in your, miss, in your mission and your message, and, and I want in. It's only after he raises his hand and begs God to, to allow him to go that God gives him the job description that he's going to fill. Maybe you need to read it. If you've never paid attention to this little section before, you need to, to hear it. So let's start in verse 8. We're kind of starting at the end, and we're going to work our way to the beginning here in just a second. But you need to see Isaiah's job description before we get into the rest of this uh, lesson, because I think it's so important. This is not a job anyone would have wanted, but Isaiah wants it. And he, he ends up doing a, uh, an incredible job uh, for the kingdom. But this job description is not one that most people would have readily signed up for. Listen to it. It's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, 
and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Right? He's going to go on, and we're going to get to that in just a second, but maybe you've read through those words so many times that you don't grasp the significance of what God's saying here. There's a passage in Chronicles where he says, If my people who are called by my name will only, remember, turn, they'll only repent, then I'll heal their land, right? Here in Isaiah, he's telling Isaiah, the preacher, who's going to preach for the rest of his life. Isaiah lives a long, long time. In fact, most of his ministry is recorded for us here in his 66th chapter book. And for the rest of his life, he's going to preach, but nobody's going to listen. Isn't that frustrating? He's going to plead with people, but nobody's going to hear it. They're not paying attention. They don't care. Can you imagine somebody spending their life down on their knees pleading a people to come back to him, to come back to God, and the people just don't care? Not only are they not interested, they're happy going through the motions, and they don't want to change. But destruction's coming, Isaiah would say, and the people just don't care. They refuse to be moved. If they'll just turn and repent... He'll heal their land, but they won't have that. They refuse. And so Isaiah's job description is, you keep on preaching, but nobody's going to listen. Nobody's going to care. You're not going to convince anybody. You're not going to save anyone. No one is going to be shifting sides because of your message it, you might as well be talking to a brick wall, Isaiah, because your message isn't going to do any good. Not, not even a little bit. No good. How many of us would sign up for that job description, right? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Then comes, I suppose, the next logical question. I think my question would be, why am I going then? But that's not Isaiah's question. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, if nobody's going to listen... Why should I go? Because he knows his people. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But that's not his question. His question is, look, look here in uh, verse 11. How long? How long am I going to do this for? How long am I going to preach and nobody's going to listen? How long am I going to call this people back to repentance and it's just going to fall on deaf ears? How long am I going to be talking to a brick wall? I don't know what response Isaiah was expecting if it was me I think I'd be expecting God to say well you know in in 10 years or 20 years or 30 or 40 years eventually there's going to be hope and there's going people are going to come that's that's not what he says so Isaiah says in verse 11 how long O Lord and he said until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains 
when it has failed. The holy seed is its stump. So how long am I going to preach and nobody's going to listen? God answers back until there's no one left left to listen. You're going to preach, Isaiah, you're going to call this people back to repentance until there's no one left to preach to. Man, sign me up, right? This is, this is the job description of a lifetime. Isaiah's got to be thinking, maybe, maybe his mindset's different than mine, but I think I would be thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Because that's a lonely task, right? To be the one person in an entire nation that seems to care about Yahweh and his, and his laws, that seems to have passion. And, and he's pretty well confirmed now that he's going to be pretty much by himself. When Elijah thought he was by himself, it just about ripped him to pieces, didn't it? Isaiah is told by Yahweh that he's going to be by himself in this endeavor. And he's going to, his job is to preach, but nobody's, nobody's going to listen. And they're not going to listen all the way until they're destroyed. Your job is a waste of time, Isaiah, but you should still go do it. Hmm. I like this passage for a number of reasons, but I like it tonight for our reasons because Isaiah went and he did this job to the best of his ability. He preached repentance to this people who refused to listen for decades. For decades, like 40, 50 years, Isaiah preached. Nobody listened. And it didn't stop him from preaching. He was constantly calling this people back to repentance. I want to know what motivated him to do this, because if I can figure out what motivated him to take, take on this job description, it better motivate me, and it better motivate you to go out and talk to people about Jesus. That's logical, right? If Isaiah is motivated enough to preach for decades to a people who will not listen, if we can figure out what motivated him to do that, then surely the goodness it'll motivate us to go out and talk to our friends, to our neighbors, right? To jump on those opportunities that sometimes we look back on and we think, oh, I wish I'd have, I wish I'd have said more. I wish I'd have said this. I, I, I wish I'd have taken advantage of this God-given opportunity. So we need some motivation. I think Isaiah is going to motivate us tonight. Flip back to, to verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Let's, let's pick up uh, some context here. Because Isaiah is going to give us all the context we want. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He's going to give you a time marker here. It's important to Isaiah that you know when he is prophesying, when he starts prophesying. And so we need to go back and do some research on who this guy is. Who is Uzziah, right? Who's King Uzziah? Well, he is king <coughs> of Judah. He's a descendant of David. He is a good man. You don't find kings in Scripture. A great many of them are not good men. Most of them are not good leaders. Uzziah is an exception. Um, 
even in the southern nation of Judah, some of their kings are not good men, are not God's men. Uzziah is an exception to that rule. He's going to rule for 52 years. He takes over when he's 16 years old. Can you imagine ruling a kingdom when you're 16 years old? That's when he starts. Uh, he's co-regent with his dad, who is also a pretty good man. He's also God's man. And so he takes over uh, the throne, uh, really when he, when he comes 40, when his dad dies. But he's co-regent with his dad for about 15, 20 years or so. So when he's 40, he takes over. Uh, he rules for 52 years. Toward the end of his life, he's going to uh, be overcome with some pride. And he's going to rush into the temple in an effort to make sacrifices uh, to God, something that was not his um, role. It wasn't his responsibility. In fact, it was, a responsibility, it was a responsibility that had been excluded from him. He's not from the tribe of Levi. And so when he comes into the temple, the priests say, whoa, 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 you, you can't be in here. This is, this is our responsibility. This is our job. We make the sacrifices. And they tried to stop him, but he wouldn't be stopped. And so he kind of just charged through them and God struck him with leprosy. And that's eventually what killed him. He lives in his own house outside of Jerusalem, isolated by himself for four years and eventually succumbs. But his own son, Jotham, who's also going to be a good God man, is going to be co-regent with Uzziah for several years during his, uh, his period of leprosy. So it's during this time period that Isaiah is called to prophesy. Um, Israel is doing very, very well during this section of history. Uh, think very much 21st century America. Um, they have two houses, at least the northern tribe does. Uh, Hosea and Amos are going to prophesy around the same time period. And Hosea and Amos tell us that these guys, at least the northern nation, had uh, two houses. And they had filled their houses with couches of ivory. And they had buckets of money rolling out of their, their bank accounts. But they were spiritually awful. They, they didn't love God. They were taking advantage of their neighbors. They were idolatrous and they were immoral. And so while the prosperity is there physically... There's no spiritual prosperity there. They're fading. And you can see it. Um, during the time of Jeroboam II, right, he's going to die right before uh, our boy jo uh, um, Uzzah, Uzziah here is going to die. Uh, Jeroboam II dies right before Uzziah. That's going to be the heyday of the northern nation of Israel. But these two rulers really make both the northern and the southern nation of Judah... This is a prosperous time in their, in, their, in their existence. Uzziah, like we said, he's a good king. God blesses him. Uh, he's a builder king, and so he's going to build all kinds of... Uh, he, uh, he rebuilds some walls. He builds some palaces and some temples and things like that. Um, but he's not going to tear down the high places. That's, that's his fallacy here. Um, if, if one can be attributed to him, that and the pride that's going to uh, be his downfall. But overall... He's a good man who's a warrior king and a builder. And so a dynasty in Israel has now died. It's very much like what happened when JFK died in our country. Um, it's kind of, it's a mark in time. 
If you're old enough to remember when JFK died, you remember where you were, right? And two towers would be the same thing for, for those of us who are a little bit younger. You remember where you were. We can mark history by that moment, right? Isaiah is doing something very similar here with the death of Uzziah. Uh, this is a, a point in history that everyone would have been familiar with, and they could have told you where they were when they heard the news that the great King Uzziah had died. And so he knows, before he's ever transported into God's throne room, the spiritual condition of Israel. Certainly, the northern nation is immoral and idolatrous. Isaiah's from the southern nation of Judah. He's familiar with their spiritual condition too. And they're not in a whole lot better spot than the northern nation. They don't struggle with idols as much. They struggle with immorality just as much. And so he is painstakingly familiar with their sin. Before he's ever transported to God's throne room, he understands what kind of people his people are. He understands. He's a righteous man. Isaiah is a good, godly man. And he looks around and he sees rampant, uncensored, uncaring sin. Nobody seems to care that what they're doing is wrong, that it has offended God. He would have been one of the guys, I'm sure, we're not told this, but I'm, I'm sure this fits in his, uh, his pedigree. He would have been one of the guys that comes up to you and says, what you're doing is not in step with, with Yahweh's rules. You can't, you can't live like this. And so he's a good man. But when he gets transported up into God's throne room, he's going to give you some indications of some things that motivate him to take on this, this job description, this responsibility that God's given him, this terrible commission of preaching, but nobody listening. And so what are those things? Well, the first one's found right here in verse 1. He sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. That, that's that imagery. When Isaiah walks into the throne room, he would have had to look up to see God's throne, right? It's this vaulted view of God. Uh, he, he is high, he is other, he is holy, he's transcendent. And then the train of his robe filled the temple. This is a big place, right? We're, don't, don't think a small uh, spot. Uh, he's picturing it as the temple, which fairly good size, right? And so when he says the train of his robe filled the, the temple, he's trying to get you to see the majesty of God. A ruler's importance was measured by the type of clothing that he chose. And in this day, uh, scholars say that uh, the, the importance of the ruler could be measured by what type of clothing he wore and how big the train uh, all of his robe was. And so God's train is so big that it fills an entire room. So he's trying to get you to see that God is completely other. That, that You can't even wrap your mind around who he is. He is so different than you. It's hard to put it into words. This, this feeling, this, this meeting he has with God and how that moves Isaiah, um, the things that he learned here, I think it's difficult for him to put it into words. 
All right, verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. These are incredible beings. Um, seraphim are a class of angels. Um, their name, seraphim, literally means burning ones. We don't really know anything else about these things um, outside of the description here. They're not mentioned anywhere else. So we're kind of left with not a lot of knowledge about what these things are. But just from Isaiah's description, just from what we know about them now, these are incredible beings, right? They've got six wings. Uh, we don't know what their face looks like. We don't know what their feet looks like because they're two of their Six wings are covering both of these appendages, right? You've got to stop and wonder why. Why are, why are their faces being covered? Well, we're familiar, of course, with the idea that no man can see God and live, right? Moses would say that. Um, Moses sees God's glory. Um, Elijah would see where God had been. But even to both of these men, and Elijah's face glowed uh, after he had met with God, but even to both of these men who have this incredible blessing of being able to see God's glory, still his presence, God's presence is veiled in some way. Um, they, they can't experience all of him. He's, he's too much. You, you wouldn't be able to to grab a hold of it. I don't know if it would blind you or if it would, if your mind just wouldn't be capable of understanding what you were seeing. Um, so we're familiar with the fact that man can't see God and live. Isaiah lets us in on this little fact that neither can the angels. That's why their faces are covered. And so when you stop and think about these, these messengers, these angels, often we see the death angel that flew over Egypt and caused this massive amount of destruction there. You may think of the angel that killed 185,000 Assyrians as the night before they were going to attack Jerusalem. Maybe you think of the angels who stood outside uh, on the mountain top, uh, on the mountain, uh, on the mountains behind Jerusalem, and they were the angels, uh, the, the, the armies. Uh, that Elisha was pointing out to his servant, these that are with us are far more than those who are against us. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of angels, but these things, these, these beings, often we, we think of those kinds of scenes with these, with these beings, but even them in their vaunted state, even them in their sinless state, can't look at God. That, that ought to put a pin in us, right? That, we, that, that ought to make us stop for a second and just contemplate why this thing's face is covered. I think it's because even, even these beings, sinless though they are, incredibly powerful though they are, don't have the right to see God. He is on a different plane than, than us, than any created being. Not just man, but any created being. Check out verse 3. 
and one, one of these seraphim, he called to another and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Maybe we, we sing a song, holy, 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 right? There's several songs that include these words. In, in Jewish thought, uh, they're saying that you're the holiest of holies. This is a superlative term, um, meaning that you can't be any more holy. That's what these, these seraphim are attributing to Yahweh. What's so interesting to me, even beyond the, the holy, holy, holy part, is the title that they give him. There's a variety of titles for Yahweh in Scripture, right? Yahweh being his, his covenantal name. The one that, uh, it means to, uh, I am, I always have been. It means to be. I, I'm, I'm, he's not created. He's never not been. He, he always has been. It. So Yahweh is to be. That being one of his titles, his name. But there's a variety of titles throughout Scripture that, that man and God calls himself. Uh, he has a lot of titles for himself. This being one of them, the Lord of hosts. Uh, there's a popular song uh, called the Lord of Angel Armies. That, that's what he's saying here. You are, that's what the seraphim are saying, that you are the Lord of Angel Armies. What? Like just when you think you, you understand what Isaiah is getting at here, he throws in this little tidbit and you think, why are you picturing God as a warrior? Why is he, why is he a general? Like I understand the, the imagery there. He is powerful and majestic and yes, uh, he fights for his people, but why is this the title that you attributed to him here? The first time you find this title in the Old Testament uh, is used by Hannah. Isn't that interesting? When she is in front of the temple praying for a child that first year, remember? Eli sees her praying, and he comes over because he, he thinks she's drunk. Um, and, and he dresses her down a little bit, and she says, no, no, and she lets him know what's going on. In that prayer, that's, that's the title that she uses for God. And it's the first time we see it in, in, in Scripture. She calls him the Lord of angel armies. He's a warrior God. And she wants him to stand up and fight for her. I'm not sure all the implications and the ramifications of what Isaiah is trying to get across here when these seraphim, or what maybe what the seraphim, maybe that's the better way to phrase this, what the, the implications of what the seraphim are trying to teach us about God, but certainly the fact is true that he fights for us. He is a, a warrior God, and you're going to see how he fights for us in just a minute. So after they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. There's not a, a section of this planet that isn't filled with his glory. Are you beginning to see the thing that has motivated Isaiah to go out and tell people about God, to call them to repentance? Let's keep reading. In verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Smoke's a common um, figure for God's presence being there. Obviously, obviously he's here. Uh, verse 5, and I said, and this is Isaiah speaking, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of angel armies. Isaiah calls him 
exactly what the seraphim called them, which just makes sense, right? Because now Isaiah thinks that he's going to obliterate him if the seraphim, who are infinitely more powerful than Isaiah, who are infinitely more sinless than Isaiah, if these incredible beings dare not look upon God's presence, and if they cover their feet in his presence, like, like he told Moses to take off your sandals because where you're standing is holy ground, right? He tells Joshua the same thing. Maybe, maybe that's why they're covering their feet because they're in his presence and where he is is holy, right? If these beings dare not look upon his presence, if they can't look on him, and Isaiah's been looking straight at him because he can't look at anything else because as the moment he's transported into the throne room, he looks up and God has caught, captured his attention and he can't look away from him. You couldn't either. I wouldn't be able to either. He's captured Isaiah's attention and held on to it this whole time. And at some point during this episode, Isaiah thinks, Oh no, <laughs> I, I'm done. I, 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 I'm going, my, my molecules are about to explode because I've seen God. And if these can't, things can't even look on Him, certainly I'm not going to be able to. They're sinless and I'm not. In fact, I live in the midst of a people that are unclean. Every word we say is unclean. We're, we're, we're awful, wretched people. We only do things that are against Him. And you can kind of see Isaiah very quickly looking across the span of his last 10, 20, 30 years and thinking, everything I've done is wrong. Everything I've done has been against him. I'm undone. He's going to obliterate me right now. I can't even figure out why he hasn't yet. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's after this, after the purification, necessary purification. Isaiah is not wrong. He is a man of unclean lips and he does live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So this purification is necessary. And so after this purification... The job description, the commission is handed out and Isaiah immediately takes it. And his only question is, how long should I preach like this? How long will I have to preach like this? How long until someone listens? And so I'm wondering what motivated him for the next 30, 40, 50 years to preach to people who didn't want to listen, who refused to listen, who shut him down, who ridiculed him. What motivated him? On this day, he had a view of it before. Like we said, Isaiah is a righteous man. He loves God. And he has a view of himself. He knows who he is. I think before he's ever transported to this throne room, I think he knows he's sinful. I think he gets all that stuff. I think he looks around at his people and sees that, that they're awful and that they've transgressed God and that they've rebelled against him at every opportunity. I think he gets all that. But he didn't get it like God got it. He didn't see his sin or his people's sin like God saw it, not until here. 
Not until Isaiah 6, when he actually has the standard right in front of him, when he's transported to God's throne room, then he gets it. And he gets it on a whole new level, right? It's like his, his mind opened up all of a sudden, and he's like, oh, I've seen it before, but oh man, it's worse than I ever thought it could be. We have, we've all rebelled, and we all deserve death. And why is he still talking to us? What is he still pleading with relate, for relationship with us? I wonder if that's not something Isaiah wondered for the rest of his life. I think what motivated him and what motivates us to go out and tell people about Jesus, what motivated him to continue teaching a people who didn't want to listen, was he grabbed a hold of God's holiness and it changed his life. When we, when we understand how holy, how other, how transcendent God is, I think that transforms us. And it pushes us and it motivates us to share that understanding with everyone around us. That's what I see in, in, in Isaiah's story here in Isaiah chapter 6. There's no doubt every verse in this passage shouts God's holiness, his transcendence, his, his otherness. He's on a completely different plane than Isaiah. And while Isaiah understood that he was sinful, he didn't really get how sinful he was until he sees God high and lifted up. And only then can he see him for who he really is. When I see me for who I really am and when I see my friends and my neighbors for who they really are and know that the sin that is on my account and on their account will condemn them and that the righteous and holy God has made a way for them out of this condemnation, it motivates me to share God's truth with them. I need to grab a hold of his holiness. I need to understand that before I understand anything else. In Luke Chapter 5, very quickly as we, as we close tonight, I had um, Dwight read Luke 5 for us because something very similar happens in Luke 5. Peter has almost the exact same um, situation happen to him as happened to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus tells him to let the nets down. On the other side, Peter says, well, that doesn't make any sense because we've been fishing all night and we haven't caught anything and you're not a fisherman, I'm a fisherman. We've been doing this for, for all our lives and it's daytime. You don't even catch fish at daytime. Maybe you don't know anything, but because you said it and I trust you, I'm going to let my nets down on the other side and they bring in such a great haul of fish they can't even bring it in uh, with one boat. Boats start sinking, so they bring in other boats. And finally, uh, they get to the shore and Jesus, uh, Jesus is there and Peter falls down at his uh, at his feet, and he says, depart from me for, for what? I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. He had the exact same reaction when he grabbed a hold of Jesus' transcendence, when he grabbed a hold of when he understood Jesus' otherness, his holiness. He had the exact same reaction that Isaiah did. Uh, get, a, get away from me, because I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Um, this, is, this is dangerous for me. This is... Uh, this is not good for me to be, for you to be around me. You know what Jesus said? What's so interesting? 
Peter's story ends just like Isaiah's does, doesn't it? Look what Jesus tells him in verse 10, kind of toward the end of verse 10. Uh, he said, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. He did the exact same thing. He, he cleansed him metaphorically, right? Peter's still got sin here. But then he commissions him to go. You go teach. And a lot of the people that Peter's teaching don't want to hear. But you know what Peter does? He teaches for the rest of his life because he's grabbed a hold of God's holiness. Verse 11, Luke 5, really sinks it for us, I guess. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed them. Without a second thought. They left their fishing business. James and John left their dad. They left their fishing poles, their nets, all the stuff that's there. All the, cost a lot of money, right? It was all they had ever known, right? This is a life-changing moment. All that's gone now. I'm following him. Once I grab a hold of his holiness, once I understand my relation to him, that I am sinful, that he is holy, and that he has a plan to make me holy too. That's something I want to share with everybody around me. I think that motivates us to share God's truth with everybody around us. This evening, if you've not heard the gospel, the power is in him. It's in his word. Salvation is there. You can be saved through the power of baptism. Have those sins washed away. Be cleansed just as Isaiah was. And have a brand new commission just like Isaiah did, just like Peter did. Tonight, maybe you've already made that decision to follow him, to be baptized, but following is hard. And you need some motivation. We want to pray for you that you can be everything that God would have you to be. If you have any need tonight, why don't you come as we stand and sing. Fear not, little flocks, and the Savior is mine. The Father's will that the kingdom be thine. O soil of the garden, the sin here below. My sheep and my lambs must be wider than snow.
Good evening, Kirk family. Uh, a couple announcements uh, before we are dismissed. Uh, as uh, youth news, um, as a reminder that there's a calendar out in the foyer table. There's also some sign-up sheets on the foyer board for youth events coming up. Um, today is the last day if you're going to sign up for camp to get the $20 discount. Uh, so sign up if you're uh, planning on going to camp. Also, uh, Carter Cage is on May 27th, so there's a sign-up sheet for that. Um, also, uh, VBS is June 4th through the 8th. Uh, if you can help out with Vacation Bible School, I don't know if uh, the committee that has, the youth committee has everybody who can help out with VBS. This seat, we do? We have everybody to help out with VBS? Okay, see Chris if you can help out uh, with Vacation Bible School. Uh, life group news. Uh, life group one, that's Rick and Chad's life group, will meet uh, for their monthly meeting next Sunday morning after uh, morning services. <laughs> and Jerry's life group, is that the reason why he called? No? Okay. <laughs> life group four. <laughs> I thought it was a reminder. Life Group 4, that's Jerry's life group, and Greg's life group will be meeting uh, Sunday morning after morning services. Um, so if you're in Jerry's life group, you'll be meeting up front. Um, also a reminder that Hometown Love is next Saturday. Uh, if you can help out with that, please see Chris. Also, um, the mowing schedule is out on the bulletin board. If you can help cut grass, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, please sign up for that. And also, we're needing teachers for the summer quarter to teach. Uh, for June through August, if you can help teach a class, uh, please see Connie Miller. Um, updates on our prayer list. Remember, continue to keep the Wheeler family. Uh, Danny Wheeler passed away Thursday. Uh, remember Gordon and Linda and Carrie in your prayers uh, at this moment and this time. Uh, the visitations at Chapman's um, funeral home from 3 to 4 on Monday. And the memorial service is at 4 o'clock there at Chapman's on Monday. Uh, remember, continue to keep Jimmy Wilgus, Terry Leap, Jim Haney, and Amber Spitzer in your prayers as well as they continue with their uh, cancer treatments. That's all the announcements I have. Um, if you had not had the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper, it has been prepared in the conference room. You may leave and do that now. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Close tonight with 971. 971. <clears throat> restore my spirit, Lord, I need restored. My heart is weary, please help me. Yeah. 
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you just thanking for this another day of life you've blessed us with. Father, thank you for these opportunities that we could come here and worship you today. We just pray everything done here has brought glory and honor to your name. Father, as we leave this place, we just ask for your, for your blessing of safety. And Father, just as we enter a new week, Father, I just pray that we can apply the things that we've learned here today to our lives and that we can be better examples of you. Father, thank you for everything that you've done for us. You are so good to us, even though we don't deserve it. Forgive us of the sins that we've committed. It's in your name we pray.